0: It's Super Bowl Sunday. Can you believe it? And I am going to see a show of hands in just a minute about something. But I don't know about you guys, but my family and I we're we're gathering together later today, and together as a family, we're excited about watching the Super Bowl. Uh, the game is probably going to be great, but the commercials. Oh, the commercials! That's what we're really pumped about. They're usually a lot of fun. So I wanna see a show of hands at all of our um, locations. I, I'd like to see if you're planning right now, planning to watch the Super Bowl. Can I see your hand, please? All right, that's about 90% of us. All right, could I see your hand, please, if you didn't know there was a game going on? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that's a number of you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, the thing I find interesting is that as I understand it, both of these teams, while they're not the teams that I would normally cheer for at all, but both of these teams have some really solid Christians on them. And I, I'm always excited to see that. And so it's kind of hard to know who to cheer for. Uh, but both of them have some wonderful, solid Christians. And I'm just praying that God will get glory through those true believers, whether it's in victory or defeat. Well, Paul made a provocative statement in Romans chapter six. I want us to look at it together as we launch into this second message in what we're calling debut of a disciple. In Romans chapter six, he said, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Buried with Christ in baptism. The question is, what in the world does that mean? We've been looking in this series at what a powerfully symbolic act water baptism is. As we go under the water into that watery grave, it's like dying with Christ. It's being crucified with him. As we remain a moment under the water, it's being buried with Christ in baptism. And as we rise out of the water, as we're going to talk about next week, wow, I'm excited about bringing this all together next week as we talk about living a spirit-empowered life in the power of the Holy Spirit, it represents being raised with Christ to live in a whole new way of life. All of that, all of that is conveyed in this wonderful act called baptism. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, and as a believer, you've never been baptized in water, I lovingly, I lovingly urge you to make that a priority let one of the pastors know, Uh, go to the information center perhaps, let someone know you'd like to get signed up for that so in in an upcoming baptism time, you can be immersed in baptism because it is an awesome, awesome step of obedience in your life. But today, I wanna focus on this second movement in baptism, which is being buried with Christ. If we can, let's look at the verse one more time, Romans six, it says we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And that's not the only place that Paul mentions that idea. As he writes to the Christians in Colossae, he mentions the same thing. He says in Colossians, having been buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism. And then to the Corinthian church, he talks about Christ being buried. In this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's listing out some of the essentials of the gospel, the non-negotiables, I want you to see what he says here. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. I want you to note that. All of God's word is inspired, all of it is important. But Paul said, there are some things that are more important than other things. And among those are that Christ died for our sins. Folks, if Christ didn't die an atoning death for our sins, then we're still in our sins. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. As Paul says so eloquently in other places, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. But why burial? I can understand the death part. I can understand the importance of the resurrection. But why doesn't he just leave the burial out? Isn't that just a throwaway idea? Not at all. In fact, I've become convinced in studying this issue through the years that most of the problems you and I have in our daily Christian life are somehow connected, connected to not really fully understanding all that is ours in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I wanna talk to you about that today. Why does the New Testament make such a big deal of the burial of Jesus and of our burial with him? Well, let me start by asking a different question. Why do we bury the bodies of people who pass away? Now, the real person goes on living, as I hope we know, but why do we we bury the body? Well, there are a lot of practical reasons for that, but I would suggest to you there are some powerful psychological reasons that traditionally we have these things called funeral services, and traditionally, burial services at a graveside somewhere. And I'm going to suggest that the powerful psychological impact of that is it helps bring a sense of finality and closure. Now, I don't know if you've ever lost a loved one in death, but when you go to a funeral home, usually they're still talking in present tense. A worker may say, well, how old is he? Uh, where does he live? They're getting some basic information. Or a funeral director may say to you, hey, your loved one is, present tense, over in this room, would you like to see him? Still talking in present tense. But once the funeral service begins, that begins to shift. It all becomes past tense now. And when you get to the graveside, again, traditionally, that's what has happened. That's the final act of closure. Burial conveys finality. We even have a saying in our culture, don't we? When someone brings up a topic we wish they hadn't brought up, we kind of look at them and then go, why bring that up? That's already dead and buried. What do we mean by that? We mean, look, we've already dealt with that. That's done for. We don't need to bring that up again. Now, the Bible teaches that true believers have been crucified with Christ, as we talked last week, and that we have been buried with him. And my question to you today are you living in the glorious freedom of that burial? A man came to me years ago, and I'll never forget this conversation. I'd known him for a number of years. He was in his upper 40s, I think, at the time. And he began to share very candidly, very openly, and I appreciated his honesty and candor, about the background in his life when he was just a very young man. And for 25 years now, he had been on this roller coaster of emotion, of guilt and shame over his past sins. And he just kind of kept relieving them. Even though, even though he was a believer in Jesus, even though he believed the gospel completely, even though he had been a leader in a different church, he was still plagued by his past. He had no confidence, you see, that his sin was really forgiven. And because he had no confidence in his forgiveness, he had no peace in his soul. And he kept reliving those past sins, and eventually he fell back into those patterns again because he said, I think, well, that's who I am anyway. I certainly don't feel forgiven. I guess I'm not worthy, he said, of God's forgiveness. Now think about this with me. Here's a man who knew the gospel. Here's a man who was in church virtually every Sunday. He had confessed his sin over and over to God. He knew Christ died for him, but he had not really understood that he had died with Christ. And he had not really understood that all of his past sins and all that stuff that he was ashamed of was dead and buried with Christ. And it was plaguing him in his Christian life and hindering his progress and growth. Now, I don't know your story, but I'll tell you what I've discovered as a pastor and what I know from my own experience in life. Can I tell you what I know? All God's children got a story. Amen? All God's children. Now, some of you, your story is a little more squeaky clean than some of the people sitting beside you. I'll grant you that. But I know one thing to be sure, everyone who's a true disciple of Jesus has got a past. You've got a story to tell, and it involves some things that you're embarrassed about, that you're absolutely ashamed of, and that you wish to God you had never done. And here's my practical question. What did God do with all of that sin? Have you ever thought about that? What does God do with our sin is the question we're asking. And that is not just a theoretical question. That's an incredibly practical question, because our answer to that and our understanding of what God has done with our sin is gonna have a whole lot to do with our emotion today. Now, here's the good news and what we're about to discover. The biblical writers inspired by God's spirit use some powerful images and metaphors and some very graphic words to describe what God has done with our sin. And as we go on this journey, I'm just gonna give you five of them, five of them. This is gonna be helpful for all of us, but if you're a Christian leader, I really want you to listen up. If you lead a small group, if you're the head of a ministry or you're a leader in any capacity in the body of Christ, I really ask you right now to really listen up to these five things, and here's why I'm asking that, because you're dealing with people in your ministry that need to know this. They really need to know these five things that we're about to explore from God's word. So, are you ready? Here we go. The first image is where David says, this is number one, that he has removed, removed our transgressions from us. That comes right out of Psalm 103 and verse 12, where we read, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions promise. Now, if he had said as far as the north is from the south, I'd be worried because the north and the south are fixed points. If I travel north, eventually I reach the north pole, and if I keep going, I start traveling south again. Same with the south pole. If I travel far enough south, eventually I begin to go north again. But hear me, If I go east, I can go and go and go and go and never go west. And the same is true with traveling west. I can go and go and go and never start traveling east. What God is saying, and the words are so strategic, as far as the east is from the west, God's removed those sins to infinity and beyond. That, my friends, is good news. And I would suggest to you that even if the Bible said nothing else about what God's done with our sins, that would be enough to make us dance a dance of joy because we're never going to see those sins again. Some of you don't believe that. So let's go on and see what else he says. Number two, what has God done with our sins? Well, he hurls our iniquities. By the way, don't get confused by these different words that the writers use. Iniquities, transgressions, sins are, while they're different Hebrew words at times, they're used pretty much interchangeably. There are little nuances and difference at times, but they're used somewhat interchangeably, so don't let that confuse you. We're talking about these wrong acts that we've done where we've disobeyed God's law. That's what it means. And this says that he's hurled them into the depths of the sea. Let's look at a couple of verses from the book called Micah in the Old Testament. Who's a God like you, who pardons sin, and forgives the transgression of the of, remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever. Remember last week, we had two pillars up here. We said God is both just and he's merciful. Well, this affirms that. You delight to show mercy. In other words, God, that's your very nature. You delight in showing mercy to people who've repented of their sin you will again have compassion on us, you will tread our sins underfoot, and here it is, hurl, hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Being in the depths of the sea is meant to suggest that they're beyond recovery. You're never gonna get them back. Cory ten Boom, a wonderful Dutch Christian leader, used to say God hurls our sins into the depths of the sea and then he posts a no fishing sign (laughs) and says no fishing here. I really like that. But here's what I know, some Christians go fishing where they ought not to and they bring in a horrible catch of past sins and transgressions and they wallow in them. Perhaps they're embarrassed about what they've done. Or maybe they're so conscientious over the fact that they don't deserve forgiveness. And so they wallow in the misery of it all, failing to enjoy the liberty that Christ purchased for them at the cross. See, I still don't believe it, pastor. I still can't believe that all that stuff that I've done, that it's just gone like that? Well, let's go on. Let's see what else God says about what he's done with our sins. Number three, he's put our sins behind his back. Now, that's an interesting thought. Behind his back, where does that come from? Isaiah chapter 38. Here's what he said. You have put all my sins behind your back. Now, I thought that God was omnipresent and he is. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Answer, nowhere. I can't get away from you, God. So the theologians tell us that God's essential presence is everywhere in all places at all times. That is true. So what does this phrase mean behind your back? The commentators that I consulted this week say, that's not a concern to God anymore. They've been dealt with. This phrase means they've been dealt with and forgiven decisively. And God has no concern about those sins anymore. There's a fourth biblical image. We're just going to look at five. The fourth one is this. He blots out our transgressions and remembers them no more. That's from Isaiah Chapter 43 and verse 25. Oh, I love this verse. I love this verse. I, even I, God says, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. We talk about forgiving and forgetting. God says, I'll do you one better than that. I'll not even remember them anymore. Not only will I not hold it against you, but I'll not remember it anymore. And my guess is that many of us don't really believe that. Because if we believed it, we would act differently and we would feel differently. Some of us are like those two brothers I heard about who were bickering and fighting all day long. I mean, it was just nasty. They were just at each other, just really, really fighting and At the end of the day, the mother had about had it. And so she went to the elder brother and she said, look, I want you to make up with your brother. I want you to say you're sorry. He said, I'm not gonna do that. He started it. It's his fault. And the mother thought she would appeal to his conscience perhaps. And she said, well, look, think about it like this. Suppose your brother died during the night. Wouldn't you be sorry in the morning if you hadn't forgiven him? And the older brothers thought for a moment and said, all right, all right, I'll forgive him. But if he's alive in the morning, (laughs) right? That's us. That's us. Oh, God, please forgive me. And he does. But we're afraid that tomorrow he's going to hold that against us again. I don't think many of us really believe this, that God blots out, forgives our transgressions and remembers them no more. But there's a fifth and final thing I want you to see and all these are so powerful. But this is to me the one that brings me the most joy, the most emotional comfort of all of these things. That is that there is no more condemnation. Where do we get that? From that amazing verse, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, which says it very straightforward, very clearly, minces no words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if that verse is true, and it is, here's the question why do so many Christians still still feel condemnation? Why? If there's no more condemnation, if, it, if we know that to be true and God cannot lie, why do, why do so many still feel condemnation? It's because there is an accuser of God's people who stands wanting to make you feel unworthy, make you feel awful, make you feel horrible. And quite frankly, he's got a lot of material to work with, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Let me say it again. All God's children got a past. All God's children have got a story to tell. There's not a person right now, listen to me, that doesn't have things in their past that they're embarrassed about, that they wish to God they had never done, that they'd love to just somehow wipe away. And Satan takes all of that and he stands at our side and he accuses us and he dredges up the past and he slams us with it. I want you to see a passage that I hardly ever see referred to, but it's an amazing passage in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Zechariah, and it's a picture of a man named Joshua who's dressed in these filthy, awful, dirty rags of clothes and he's standing before God and Satan is standing beside him, accusing him. There's a powerful lesson in this. Go with me here. I want you to see this from Zechariah chapter three. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan... The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Folks, that's like shouting ground right there. In this amazing Old Testament passage, God is giving us a vivid picture of what happens to us as New Testament believers. This man, Joshua, don't, Don't uh, confuse him with the Joshua that led the people into the promised land. This is a completely different Joshua altogether. He's standing there before God. Satan is at his side accusing him, and he feels awful. He feels shameful, He feels embarrassed about all these things that Satan is bringing up and bringing back. He's dressed in these filthy rags. He feels unclean before God, but then the Lord rebukes Satan and tells him to flee, and God clothes Joshua with these clean clothes, which represent the Lord's righteousness. And guess what the New Testament comes along and says about you when you belong to Jesus. He says, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Wow, wow, what, whoa, whoa. You You mean I don't have to be defined by all that stuff I did back there? Not at all. It's a new day when you come to Christ. I mean, it's not only wiped clean, God's hurled it, God's blotted it out. It's been buried in the deepest sea. There's no more condemnation for you. And now you've, to boot, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And here's the best part. Because all that is true, Satan has no basis whatsoever for any accusation against you. So brothers and sisters, please listen to me carefully right now. Jesus did not die on the cross so you could live a ho-hum Christian life and hope to get washed up on the shores of heaven one day. Not at all. Jesus died on the cross so that you could be crucified with him. He was buried so that all your shame and guilt could be buried with him. And he rose again victoriously so that you could be raised with him to live a brand new spirit empowered life. Yes, that's what the Christian life Is about. You say, but Pastor Rex, I don't deserve all that. Are you kidding me? Of course you don't deserve it. That's what Christianity is all about. We get a righteousness, we get a standing with God that we don't deserve at all. Jesus earned it for us. And if you've not understood that part, I I don't mean to be offensive. But you've not understood Christianity at all if you don't understand that. It's not about you earning it. He already earned it. Remember last week? You don't spell the Christian life D-O. You spell it D-O-N-E. It's about what Jesus has already done through his death, burial, and glorious resurrection. And we get to accept that by grace, through faith, But you say, but pastor, you don't understand. Day by day in my emotions, I still feel condemned. I hear you. Where do you think that's coming from? Got news for you. It's not coming from God. The man that I mentioned earlier, after we've been talking for quite some time, I said, Where do you think this condemnation is coming from? Here was his answer. I think God is showing me how horrible I am. Whoa, 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 wait wait a minute, wait a minute. You've just told me that you confessed all these things. You've given them to God, you've repented of them. They're under the blood of Jesus. They've been hurled into the depths of sea. There's no more condemnation for you. If you're still feeling condemned, that ain't God. That's your enemy, the devil. God deals in conviction, yes. But it's meant to be redemptive. Satan deals in condemnation. So if you're feeling horrible over past sins that are already under the blood of Jesus, that's not God, that's your enemy trying to take you down. That's your enemy, the devil. God deals in conviction, the devil deals in in condemnation. So let me ask you, just getting real, just getting completely real and honest, does it, does it happen to you? Have you had at times those experiences like I have where stuff from the past that you wish to God you'd never done and your enemy brings it back up and before you know it, you're feeling horrible You're feeling yucky, you're feeling so dirty and so unclean and so unworthy before God because the accuser is just beating you up. Do you, like me, sometimes struggle with taking what you know to be true and actually feeling it in your emotions? See, that's where the battle is won right there. We can take what you know to be true based on the gospel based on God's word, and actually feel it in your emotions. And here's the way I wanna close today. If that's you, and it may be one person listening to me right now, it may be be hundreds for for all I know, but I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for you as we close. And if you know what it's like to feel the condemning voice of the enemy, and to struggle with that and know, you know, I know better than this. I know that stuff is gone. I know there's no more condemnation, but I still feel awful. I'm going to ask you to stand right now at all of our campuses. I want you to stand, whether it's one, whether it's dozens, it doesn't matter. I want to pray for you right now as we wrap up this part of the service. I want to pray for you Because here's the daily miracle that needs to happen. The daily miracle, the daily miracle that needs to happen is for this good news to go from our head and to get into our emotions. That's where the victory happens. So I'll give you just another moment. If you want to receive this prayer, I'd ask you just in a a bold act to stand up. And as you do, I wanna go to God in prayer. Father, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters. They know the struggle, just as I do, of what it's like to have Satan, the accuser, just beat you up. Bring up things that God has already forgiven. They're already under the blood of Jesus and they've been buried in the deepest sea and yet he dredges them back up. And we start feeling that yucky emotion all over again. Father, this is my prayer For my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would give that daily miracle, that 18-inch transformation, that space from the head and knowing it's true to actually living it and feeling it in our emotions. And oh God, I pray that when the devil comes in like a flood, when he comes in with his accusations, that you would give every one of us the awareness, the alertness to recognize the attack and say, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You have no ground here. I renounce you. I belong to Jesus. What is true of him, he says, is true of me. Father, I pray for this victory. I pray that it would be a daily thing. And I pray that there would be Glorious victories going on all over the capital region and far beyond as we learn more to live in the glorious freedom of the sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.